Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Chocolate Owl. Chocolate Owl. Hi, everybody. Hi. Save that for the after show. Yeah, hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. Hello. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. As our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes, listener discretion is strongly advised. We are not experts on any of the topics we present. Nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in the darker side of Canadian history. This is the second part of two covering the crimes of Canadian-born serial killer Keith Hunter Jesperson, the happy face killer. Scott's favorite person. He's a dick. Last week, we heard a little of Jesperson's time in Chilliwack, B.C., where he was born. And then his family's move to Washington State and his first murder, that of Tanya Bennett in early 1990. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Keith Hunter Jesperson had gotten away with Tanya Bennett's murder. Two others had been arrested for it. He'd also attempted to kill another woman and escape consequence for that, too. Keith was beginning to think he was unstoppable. Experience to this point did not deny that. Scott, Scott groans. After working for a time in Sacramento, Keith returned to Portland. He wanted to patch things up with Peggy Jones. He needed sex. He knew she would provide it. In October of 1990, Keith's son Jason received a concussion and Keith wanted to be closer to his children, so he picked up Peggy and her kids and moved to Spokane to be close to his other family. Hmm. Despite having dark, insane urges to rape and murder, part of him was still capable of loving his children, I guess as serial killers are capable at all. Yeah, it's amazing how many of them actually have uh, families and are constantly viewed by others as being a good parent. Uh, it doesn't excuse his behavior. It only highlights his capability as being a psychopath of oh. being able to compartmentalize. Yeah, no, that's that was my point exactly. It's crazy. Yeah, uh, it makes him appear more normal to anyone viewing from the outside, allowing them to get away with their horrific deeds for longer. Hey, look, I have a family. I can't be, you know, choking people to death in the back of my truck. Exactly. I have loving children. Yeah, but you do. Well, that's what I'm saying, like, is I can't be a killer. I've got wonderful kids. I'm a good father. I'm not speaking like this is me, Mike. I'm speaking in the third person. Okay. As if I was him, not me. Oh, I, I thought you were going to admit to something here on the podcast, and I was I was just waiting. It, the challenge I have with a lot of that is, that's a lot of work. <laughs> Fair enough. And I'm, I, I think Scott is way too lazy to be a, a serial killer. God, I'm, I'm way too lazy to hold a job. <laughs> 
<laughs> let alone like that's true too yeah Peggy and Keith began working for a long-haul trucking company doing over 6,500 miles a week. That's a lot of driving. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In early 1991, Laverne Pavlinak and John Sosnovsky were convicted of Tanya Bennett's murder. Even after Laverne's lawyer tried to prove reasonable doubt by attempting to introduce Keith's first happy face note, written on a truck stop bathroom wall in Livingston, Montana. Yeah, I mean... In a court case, saying here was something written on a bathroom wall isn't going to be really uh, powerful evidence to get somebody. Well, it depends on if the writer of that note knows something that nobody else would know. But in that in, in that in, stall in, scrawl, in, in this particular note, he did not. Yeah, he, what he wrote was, "I killed Tanya Bennett, January twenty first, nineteen ninety, in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her, and loved it." Yeah. And then he finishes by saying, yes, I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame and I'm free. And he signed it with this stupid happy face. Yeah. If I was a judge, I can't, I can't make every bathroom stall scrawl about a uh, crime or anything as evidence of innocence for somebody else. Like that's not powerful enough to get somebody off. So I can understand. Yeah. And it's hearsay. Yeah. Crazy that it turned out that it actually was. <laughs> Like, legit. Like, yeah. yeah. He got off on taunting the police, obviously. Oh, God. So many do. Yeah. And he didn't want two people to actually get the credit for something. I think that was his big thing is just like, hey, you know what? Regardless of getting caught or not, this is mine, not yeah. yours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Keith couldn't figure out why these two would admit to a murder he'd committed, but he didn't ponder that too long. Better them in the slammer than him. Yeah, yep. After causing a bit of trouble by being unwilling to pay a fine for his truck being overweight at a scale in Iowa, Keith was arrested on a warrant for first-degree sexual assault from Shasta. Mm. The woman he tried to kill there had pressed charges. Good. Peggy was livid. In a moment of weakness, Jesperson actually owned up to having killed Tanya Bennett. Whoa. Whoa. He said he'd done it to practice killing. Peggy had asked him to kill her ex at one point, and he claimed he was just wanted to get ready for that. Jeez. So, Peggy, at this point, you run, Peggy. No, she didn't. Oh. She didn't believe him, actually. Uh, eventually, she did, obviously. As he was driven away by the cops, Peggy drove up, off with their load of lumber, and I can't imagine what was going through her head. Yeah, right? Yeah. That's going to be a very... Uh, I don't think she remembers much of that drive home. Her brain was probably just like a mile a minute. The felony charges were dropped to a misdemeanor, and he promised to clear that up the next time he was in California. This guy is a slick. Yep. Yep. It's like Teflon, Teflon serial killer. That doesn't have, that doesn't ring very well. No, happy There's... face killer is better. Yeah. All Keith learned from these events was that next time his victim would not live to tell what he had done. Ugh. Yeah, because remember, he's only killed one person at this point. Yeah. Well, yeah. not only. He has killed one person at this point, but he's not yet a serial killer. Yep. Yeah, he's refining. Keith didn't see anything in the papers or on the news about his first happy face note, which disappointed him. On another trip a few months later, he decided to do some more taunting. This time he left a clue that only the killer might know. Ah. But this is after the conviction, conveniently. Yeah, yeah. Killed Tanya Bennett in Portland. Two people got the blame so I can kill again. Cut buttons off jeans. Dash proof. Hmm. And guess how he signed that note? 
It wasn't Keith Hunter Jesperson. With a thumbprint? No, it was yeah. a happy face. Yeah. Like, what a taunt. <laughs> you called somebody a dildo in our, one of our other episodes, and mm -hmm. someone quite enjoyed that. Well, you're a fucking dildo. There you go. I've got. Don't worry, listeners. I got a lot of uh, names to just call don't people. use douche canoe because that's what the captain uses from uh, True Crime Garage. That's pretty much his thing. Well, Even though we've been saying that for years. Yeah, uh, you know, and douche canoe's gonna slip out every once in a while. But don't worry, I got pockets full of names. Oh well, just save them for this episode because there's plenty of name calling that can be done with this tool. This is fucking twat waffle. Once again, nothing in the media after that. He was pissed. What the heck did he have to do to get some recognition? Well, how about you just like, go with the option of not killing? There's that. The trucking company fired Keith when they got wind of the Shasta incident, and Peggy quit in support. Okay, Peggy quit him. She should have, but she didn't. No. Keith went to work on a fish processing ship bound for Alaska called the Ocean Pride, but he hated it, so he came back to trucking. Yeah, I would imagine there's some pretty uh, substantial differences between those two jobs. Like water, not water. There's that. Yep. There's sitting and driving versus like manual labor. Yep. So my job uh, assessment rant. You do color commentary. I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I'm the, I'm the Tom Larshad podcast. You know, about... Probably 2% of the podcast is going to know who that is. Oh, I think 2% is um, is giving. It's, uh, Nobody's going to know. 1% might. Does anybody know who Tom Larshide is? Please leave a comment on our Facebook page. <laughs> Keith got another job trucking out of Yakima, Washington. Yakima. Yeah, never been there. No, I haven't either. He'd been fantasizing a lot about Tanya Bennett's murder at that point, reliving it over and over in his mind. Nothing measured up to the actual experience. He wanted to do it again. Oh, God. In the summer of 1992, Jesperson's next real chance presented itself just outside of San Bernardino in California at a brake check. A woman named Claudia came begging for a ride to Phoenix. Oh, no. Claudia jokingly called herself a throwaway woman. Keith did not see it as humorously. On the road, Keith made his first moves. Claudia told Keith that if he wanted sex, he'd have to pay for it. Keith told Claudia he didn't pay for sex, and he raped her. The fact that she resisted aroused him a lot. At the next truck stop, Claudia threatened to call the cops on Keith if he didn't give her all the money he had on him for what he had done. When Claudia gave him an ultimatum, your money or jail, Keith struck fast. Telling her it would be neither... Keith locked the doors. He grabbed Claudia, dragged her into the sleeper, and duct-taped her arms and legs. Jeez. Because somebody who isn't a serial killer just has duct tape in his, in his truck. Not sure. like he might have been planning that or something. Oh, red-green might. Red-green, another very Canadian individual. We're in, the, we're in the midst of a murder here, and you're bringing up red-green. You brought up duct tape. That is red-green. He'd like the show based around duct tape. He knocked her out by pushing his fist into her throat using all his weight. Good Lord. <sighs> she came to when he was trying to figure out what to do with her corpse. Keith was raping Claudia again when a cop car pulled up beside his truck. The cops went inside to eat. Keith made sure Claudia was secure in the sleeper and drove away nonchalantly. God. Just calm, cool, and collected, wow. I guess. Yeah. Claudia kept trying to escape the tape, so Keith had to retape her arms and legs tighter. At the next truck stop, Keith raped Claudia until he wore himself out. She kept saying, I'm tired of this. Keith was tired too. Ugh. He began choking Claudia with his massive hands until she passed out. 
and then allowing her to wake up again, complaining. Oh my God. He did it over and over until he was bored, loving the sense of power he had over life and death. Yeah, what a sick man. Finally, Jesperson throttled Claudia until he was sure she was dead. He was excited again, but now he had to get rid of her. He dumped Claudia in an isolated spot near the Arizona border, covered her with tumbleweeds and drove away. <sighs> Just like she was garbage. Well, in his mind, that's how he views her. A month later, Keith met another woman at a rest stop who he believes was named Cynthia. He wasn't sure of her name when he killed her after a brief encounter. He simply threw her down in his sleeper and choked her until she stopped moving. He was disappointed with this kill as he hadn't gotten to play his games. He dumped her near Turlock, California in the parking lot of a place called the Blueberry Hill Cafe. After standing on her neck to make sure she was dead, he threw her on a garbage pile and covered her up with more tumbleweeds. Oh, God. Just the visual of him, of a person standing on someone's throat. Willingly, intentionally to cause death. Like it's, oh. Yeah. Oh, it's terif terrifying to think of. The body of Cynthia Lynn Rose was found a month later where Jesperson had left her. The police had no leads. <sighs> yeah, I'm, I'm really disgusted by this guy. Yeah, as you should. In November of 1992, Keith murdered another truck stop sex worker named Lorianne Pentland. He claimed she double-charged him for sex. As he was killing Lori, Keith told her she was the fourth woman who had pushed her luck with him. Mm, Jesus. Yeah, he liked to talk to them at this point. Well, it, it's part of his kink with this. Like, he likes to torture. He was like, with that, with that other murder, he was disappointed because he didn't get to play his game. So that's a big part of what he uh, gets off on. Keith played his game of death, choking her and reviving her for about an hour before murdering the young woman. He enjoyed watching the light leave her eyes. Yeah. Keith dumped Lori's body in some blackberry bushes around the garbage behind G.I. Joe's Sporting Goods in Salem, Oregon, Lori's hometown. In March of 1993, Jesperson met a young woman who is still a Jane Doe at the Petro truck stop in Corning, California. He took pity on her in the rain and bought her a meal in the diner. She asked if he was going to Sacramento. Keith said he was and offered her a ride after she begged. Poor girl, just trying to get somewhere, not realizing who she's getting this ride with, who she's asking for help. She was willing to have sex with him in the sleeper after they pulled off to the side of the road. Keith surprised a woman, beginning to choke her during the sex act and telling her that he was going to kill her. He played his choking game with her a few times before finally killing her a while later. He put her body behind a pile of rocks off the road a little further down. He couldn't remember if she'd said her name was Cindy or Carla. In the fall of 1993, Keith couldn't contain his secret anymore and told a buddy he'd been killing women and couldn't stop. His friend blew him off. He didn't go into detail. Yeah, I'm going to just like say, like, Mike, if you ever tell me you've killed somebody, I'm not going to blow it off. If anybody out there ever says, hey, Scott, I kill people. Sorry, don't tell me these things because I will turn you in. What if it's a joke? Because maybe some of these people think that he's kidding. No, you're still going to jail. Fantastic. Yeah. Get ready for the pokey. <laughs> That's right where I belong. Exactly. In early 1994, Keith met Julie Ann Winningham. They had a brief affair, but for some reason she got out alive. Hmm. I guess he liked her. Yeah. After dumping Julie, Keith came across an article about Tanya Bennett and the two who were serving time for her murder, Keith's crime. He was furious all over again. Keith sent a note, signed with a happy face, to the Washington County Courthouse. 
I killed Miss Bennett, January 20th, 1990. I left her one and a half miles east of Lateral Falls on the switchback. I used a half-inch soft nylon rope burnt on one end, frayed, cut on the other, and tied it around her neck. Her teeth protruded from her mouth. Death was caused by my right fist pushing into her throat until she quit moving, threw her Walkman away. Her purse, two dollars, I threw into the Sandy River. I cut the buttons off her jeans. I raped her before and after her death. I left her facing downhill and her jeans down by her ankles. I did not know any of them. Wow. So I did wow. not know any of them. Yeah, not her. Not her. Yeah. Interesting, hey? Yeah. Well, it could also be interpreted, didn't know any of the people who were convicted for it, but... Yeah. Yeah, it could be. Still no mention in the papers. What the hell? Yeah, he's just so... He needs this credit. In April, Keith thought he would give more information, and this time he sent his note to the Oregonian, a large newspaper in the area. And this is a bit of a long one, and here's what he said. I would like to tell my story. I am a good person at times. I always wanted to be liked. I have been married and divorced with children. I didn't really want to be married, but it happened. I've read your paper and enjoyed it a lot. Well, thank you, Mr. Serial Killer. Much appreciated. <laughs> I always have wanted to be noticed like Paul Harvey, front page, etc. So I started something I don't know how to stop. On or around January 20th, 1990, I picked up Sonia Bennett and took her home. I raped her and beat her real bad. Her face was all broke up. Then I ended her life by pushing my fist into her throat. This turned me on. I got a high. The panic set in. Where to put the body? I drove out to the Sandy River and threw her purse and Walkman away and drove the scenic road past the falls. I went back home and dragged her out to the car. I want to know that it was my crime. I think he might have meant I want you to know. I don't think he was scholastically brilliant. <laughs> Maybe not. So I tied a half-inch soft white rope cut on end and burned the other around her neck. He mentioned yellow rope in the other note. Hmm. I drove her to switch back on the scenic road about one and a half miles east of Lateral Falls. Dragged her downhill. Her pants were around her knees because I had cut the buttons off. They found her the next day. I wanted her to be found. I felt real bad and afraid that I would be caught. But a man and woman got blamed for it. My conscience is getting to me now. She was my first, and I thought I would not do it again, but I was wrong. Oh, bullshit, you knob. It wasn't your conscience. It was credit. Yeah. You didn't want somebody else getting credit for what you've done. Because someone with a, a real conscience about it would draw a happy face. Yeah, and then probably not continue to kill. Or turn himself in. Exactly. No, no, but his conscience wasn't so bad that he needed to do those things. Guess what? Hmm. The paper didn't acknowledge it <laughs> at all. And so this drove him completely around the bend. Good. So guess what he did? He wrote another note? He wrote another note. This is why we got the, the moniker Happy Face Killer. One of the uh, editors at the newspaper gave him that name, the Happy Face Killer. Oh, he must have loved it. I'm sure he enjoyed yeah. being being noticed like that. And this is why I kind of thought maybe I don't want to do this podcast because I don't want him to get off on us talking about him. Well, he he's going to not be so jazzed because I've called him a twat waffle. I've called him a, I don't even remember what else. He's a fucking idiot. He's, yeah. He's, he's, a, he's terrible at grammar. 
He's poorly educated, clearly. I bet you, you bet you stinks too. I bet you he stinks. I, I bet you he, he does. Um he's pathetic. Yeah. He's pathetic. He's a he's a pathetic human being. And if you're listening, good, you pathetic piece of shit. There you go. So he wrote another note. Oh, great. And this is what he said. My last victim was a street person. It was raining in Corning, California. She was wet. I offered her a ride to Sacramento, California. I stopped at a rest area near Williams and had her. I put her body on a pile of rocks about 50 yards north of Highway 152, westbound about 20 miles from Santanella. It was getting hard to trust my inner self. I kept arguing with my conscience. I had to get away from long-haul trucking. Victims are too easily found, so I quit and found a good job driving where I am in the public eye and out of harm's way. I got away from what became easy. I do not want to kill again. I want to protect my family from grief. I would tear it apart. I feel bad, but I will not turn myself in. I am not stupid. Well... No, you are. Yeah, you are. I do know what would happen to me if I did. In a lot of opinions, I should be killed and I feel I deserve it. My responsibility is mine and God will be the judge when I die. Nope. Nope. The court system will. I am telling you this because I will be responsible for these crimes and no one else. It all started when I wondered what it would be like to kill someone and I found out. What a nightmare it has been. I sent a letter to Washington County Judge's criminal court taking responsibility to number one, the Bennett murder. But nothing has been in your paper. This freedom of press, you have the ball, okay? Yeah, again, genius. Good writing. I will be reading to find out. I used gloves and the same paper as last letter. No prints. Look over your shoulder. I may be closer than you think. Hey, I, I love how, like, oh, my conscience, my conscience. But then, yet yeah, at the end, threatens them. And signed with a happy face. Yeah. Keith killed another woman he knew only as Susanna in September of 1994 in Florida. He left her in some brush with two distinctive plastic ties around her neck. He didn't want anyone else taking credit for more of his murders. He believed this would help later to ID Susanna as his kill. I think he knew at that point that he was going to get caught. Uh, well, I think he, when, he, if. he, one of his earlier notes when he talked about always wanting to be like, he just, he, he wants some fame from it. He wants to be known. He yep. wants to be known. And so I think in that sense, he wants to be caught because finally he'll be famous. Mm -hmm. He'll be a, a name and also a moron. Oh boy. Yep. On January 20th, 1995 in Spokane, Keith Hunter Jesperson met Angela Sabriz at Ridpath Hotel. Angela was on the outs with her boyfriend and the two hit it off right away. They spent some time together, a few days. After Angela made up with her boyfriend over the phone, she wanted to come along with Jesperson on a trucking trip to Indianapolis. Keith agreed to take her but began to think his darker thoughts right away. Yeah, she had rejected him. These poor people, like, they just have no idea what they're signing up for when they uh, go with him. And he would tell them that they had no idea while he was doing what he was compelled to do. Keith forced Angela into sex in Nebraska at a truck stop. At that point, he knew she had to die. He couldn't risk another woman yelling rape at a truck stop or diner. How about you stop fucking raping people then? You're right. Oh, there is a there is an easy solution. Th that's a pretty uh, that one's pretty foolproof. But he's addicted to the high from it, right? I'm addicted to fucking hating him. 
Keith told the terrified woman they were going to play a death game. He threw her on the floor and did his thing, choking Angela and reviving her at least four times before she finally died. Angela had used his credit card to call her family and friends. As well, he was sure her fingerprints would be on file somewhere. Hmm. Yeah, what he did next is horrible. Oh, no. He grabbed a bite to eat at McDonald's. He sat in his truck eating, chatting with Angela's corpse in the sleeper, telling her she got what she deserved and contemplated his next moves. He had a brilliant idea to make Angela unrecognizable. He drove to a remote area, taped her hands in front of her, and tied her to the underside of his trailer, face down. Holy shit. Nose to the pavement to grind off her face and fingerprints. Holy shit. He drove with Angela under his truck for about three minutes. Fuck. Not wow. much. <laughs> I know. Wow. Not much was left uh, of what had been Angela when Jesperson dumped her in the weeds about 50 feet off the highway near a fence. Apparently, he ground her face down to her ears. Oh, my God. I'm just, I'm in shock. Uh, remember the case in Maple Ridge? Which one? Where the uh, gas station attendant was dragged under the car. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So a similar thing. Yeah. He knew at that point it was just a matter of time before he got caught. He began contemplating suicide again and started being reckless when driving his truck. He drove in complete darkness with his lights off. His trucking pals knew something was wrong, but they didn't know what. You're so quiet. I'm in, uh, I'm at a loss after that last little bit of dragging her yep. under the truck. I mean... Horrific. <sighs> Two months after murdering Angela Sabrese, Keith ran into his old girlfriend, Julie Winningham, at the Burns Brothers truck stop in Troutdale, Oregon. She looked good. She'd lost her license due to a DWI and needed a lift. They had sex a few times over the next couple of days, and Julie said they were back together. She even started calling him her fiancé. Wow. But also, she said she wanted money. Okay. She said $2,000 or she'll tell everyone that Keith raped her. Oh, that's not going to end well. Keith warned her, and she threatened him again. The same way Claudia, his second victim, had. She said, the money or the cops. Yeah. Keith raped Julie and then choked her unconscious and taped her wrists and ankles, leaving her unconscious in the passenger seat of the truck. He took her to a more secluded spot. Julie came to, and Keith raped her again. He started to tell her what he was going to do to her and started to play his game of death. Oh, fuck. He did so until the sun came up and Julie was dead. As he pressed his fist into her throat for the last time, Keith said to Julie, You're number eight, and yes, I will get away with it. What a, like, personal way of killing. Like, Pushing your fist into their throat, like, that's a very, very slow and painful. Like, he wants them looking at him. Yeah. As their life is leaving. Wow. Keith dumped Julie's body on the Washington state side of the Columbia River Gorge, right across from Tanya Bennett's dump site. Mm. Keith had broken the golden rule, though. He killed someone he knew, and people knew he knew Julie Winningham, too. Many had seen them together. Perhaps part of them wanted to get caught at this point. Yep. A day after he dumped her, Julie Winningham's body was found. Clark County, Washington Sheriff's Department Detective Rick Buckner was assigned to investigate. It didn't take him long before he found out that Julie Winningham had been seen with a trucker named Keith Hunter Jesperson, who she was referring to as her fiancé. Where was this guy? Buckner checked with the trucking company, obviously. Of course, yeah, good. 
On Wednesday, March 22nd, 1995, Rick Buckner knew Jesperson was going to be in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and he was going to be there to meet him. Good. Get him, Rick. <laughs> Las Cruces Sheriff's deputies and Buckner arrested Jesperson and questioned him for six hours about the murder of Julie Winningham. Jesperson didn't give up any information at the time, and they had to let him go. They needed him to talk. Mm -hmm. Police photographed and fingerprinted Keith. He played along, trying not to give himself away. When the cops took hair and blood samples, he knew he was screwed, but remained silent. Yep. After he was released, Jesperson headed to Arizona. He knew he was done for. He made a lame attempt at suicide using Sudafed. When he woke up in the morning, he wrote a confession letter to his brother and mailed it. The letter read, 3-24-95. Hi, Brad. Seems like my luck has run out. I will never be able to j enjoy life on the outside again. I got into a bad situation, got caught up with emotion. I killed a woman in my truck during an argument. With all the evidence against me, it, it looks like I truly am a black sheep. The court will appoint me a lawyer, and there will be a trial. I am sure they will kill me for this. I'm sorry I turned out this way. I have been a killer for five years and have killed eight people, assaulted more. I guess I haven't learned anything. Dad always worried about me because of what I have gone through in the divorce, finances, etc. I have been taking it out on different people. We pay so much of child support. As I saw it, I was hoping they would catch me. I took 48 sleeping pills last night and woke up well-rested. <laughs> the night before, I took two bottles of pills no, to no avail. They will arrest me today. And he signed this one, Keith. Mm-hmm. No happy face. Yeah. He he is constantly trying to find ways to uh, remove uh, fault from himself, even when admitting that he's killed people. Oh, it was, yeah, it was a rough divorce. No, mm -hmm. I, you know, if, if divorce has caused that, like half this planet would be dead. Exactly. But they don't. They don't. He's just a piece of shit who got off on killing people. I hope he listens to this. Good, so do I. Because you know what? You know what? I'm not in jail. I'm free to do what I want to do on a daily basis. Whereas you, you dildo, you're in prison. Yeah. You're a piece of shit. Nobody likes you. Nobody wants to be around you. Except for maybe your prison buddies. But I'm sure they even... Yeah. Don't like you. Tell us how you really feel, Scott. Yeah. No, I'm going to wait. <laughs> I'm holding back. Keith called Rick Buckner, now back in Vancouver, Washington. He told him he was ready to confess to the murder of Julie Winningham. Keith was arrested at a restaurant without incident and put on suicide watch. Buckner and another detective arrived to drive Keith Hunter Jesperson back to Washington. Buckner told Jesperson he had used the same handcuffs when he apprehended Wesley Allen Dodd, a notorious serial killer of young boys in Washington State. Yeah, that's a Wesley Allen Dodd. That's a heavy one. Yeah, I, that's why I put that in there specifically, because I know that is one that you and I have talked about before. Yeah. And I think it was because it was young boys who he was killing, and both of us have had our bad experiences well and not to get too uh, uh far off the topic here but also because he was very one of the things about him that i found fascinating was his candor after being caught i remember interviews with him where he mm -hmm. flat out said no no i should never be released i will kill again i will do this again yeah 
Keith began to rethink the wisdom of sending the letter to his brother. He might only get a few years for a passion killing in the case of Julie Winningham. Keith called Brad from the jail, telling him to destroy the letter. Too late, Brad had shown the letter to Les Jesperson, their dad. Les had told Brad to turn the letter over to police, which he did. Keith had disappointed his father one more time. Yeah, he disappointed society. Keith started running his mouth pretty much right away. He owned up to the murder of Tanya Bennett in 1990. He claimed he wanted the two innocent people to go free, but his motives were more like wanting his due credit for the crime. He admitted being the writer of the Happy Face notes and was upset that no one seemed to have taken him seriously. In October of 1995, Keith showed cops where he'd met Tanya and where he'd killed her. He also led them to her purse, still there in the blackberry bushes where he'd tossed it more than five years ago. Mm. Tanya Bennett's driver's license was still there too. Mm. So guess who gets out of jail? Pavlinak and, and Sosnovsky. Oh, yes. Keith would not shut up and wanted people to know why he was confessing and why he hadn't before. He wrote to the Columbian newspaper in Vancouver, Washington. First of all, you probably want to know why I'm doing this. Well, it has robbed me of sleep for five years. I am, in fact, the happy face killer that Phil Stanford has talked about in his editorials. Hmm. I created that man because I wanted to be stopped but it is hard just to come out and say it. You didn't want to be stopped, or you wouldn't stop. Yeah. Keith started telling so many different stories to so many different people, it was hard to figure out what was fact and what was fiction. Or whatever comes out of his mouth is fiction. Whatever evidence they find is fact. Yeah. Done. From Jack Olson's book, I, the Creation of a Serial Killer, through a pen pal with a computer, he opened a website and offered a self-start serial killer kit. Now you can be the only serial killer on your block. Um, what? And a life-size blow-up doll of a murdered woman. In articles that began, Hello, my internet fans, he referred to his victims as my piles of garbage and made other comments in the process of soliciting donations for his legal defense. What the fuck? I was wondering how you would react to this. Shock. <laughs> yep. Keith claimed through the media that he'd not only killed women, but he had beat a man to death in Canada. Hmm. He also went on to claim that he'd killed 166 people across the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, I'm calling shenanigans. Shenanigans. Then he would recant everything in another interview, claiming to be completely innocent. Of course, Jesus. He would send his fans letters signed with a happy face. Yeah, see, like he totally... Uh, it has nothing to do with uh, conscience or feeling guilty. He fucking enjoyed what he was doing. He wants the credit. When talking about his lies, he said, I built their case's foundation out of lies that I alone can tear apart in court. When it is all over, the truth will be shown to exist. The prosecution's case will fall apart and my jury will know the truth. They will not like the truth because it is relatively simple and not gory in what the prosecution would like everyone to believe. I have orchestrated this case from the start, and I know what will happen in the end. The prosecution cannot have me both ways. Either I am credible, or I am not believable. Uh, he's doing he's his dance. He's, yeah. trying to, he's trying to get off. He's trying to confuse things. Well, and, and he's getting off on the celebrity. Attention, yeah. Because yeah. he's a narcissist. Because he's a loser. That's such strong language. I know. I know. I'm trying to come up with new things to call him, and I'm struggling. Even with all this nonsense going on, the legal system did its job. 
Keith Hunter Jesperson was found guilty of the murder of Julie Winningham first, and then determined to be guilty of another seven, but it is really unclear whether he has actually killed more. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole until he turns 108 years old. My bet is he doesn't make it that far. No. No. My hope is that too. Mine as well. But even if he does make it to 108, I don't think they're going to let him out of jail. It's like, yeah, you're 108 years old. You can't see, move, whatever, but you still did what you did. And I'll still be taunting him because I'll only be like You'll 90. only be in your 90s. Yeah. yeah. Which is totally going to happen. You think you're going to make it to your 90s? Fuck yeah. Oh. God, God, yeah. You're like a cockroach. Like a solid 99. I don't know about me. We'll see. We will. In a 2014 BBC article written by Melissa Moore, Keith Hunter Jesperson's oldest daughter, she revealed that in hindsight, there were signs. Hmm. She said, As we were turning the corner by my high school, a big roll of duct tape rolled out of the sleeping compartment, which struck me as pretty strange too. I thought, why does my dad have duct tape by his pillow? Well, everything's probably in weird places because there's not a lot of space in here. Yeah, I can't, I can't fault uh yeah, I mean... The, 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 fam the families are victims as well. But can you... This is what I'm... This is what I'm thinking from her perspective. Like, later on, she's thinking, holy crap. Well, it's easy to put these puzzle pieces together uh, after the fact. Yeah. But it, we've... You're not going to see a roll of duct tape go and go, oh, my God, my dad's a serial killer. You're going to try to rationalize it sure. in your head. That's what we do. She also said, when I was 13... We are driving along the Columbia River, a beautiful wide river that separates Washington State and Oregon. We were getting close to Multnomah Falls area when my dad announced, I know how to kill someone and get away with it. Then he started to tell me how he would cut off the victim's buttons so that there wouldn't be any fingerprints left. He would wear cycling shoes that didn't leave distinctive prints in the mud. Yeah, that's a, that's a bit more specific. She knew her dad was into murder mysteries, though, and she thought mm. he might be referring to something she, he'd learned there. And she realized many years later that they had been driving right by the spot where Tanya Bennett's body had been dumped. Again, we're going to rationalize. Sure. That's what we're going to do. Yeah, you're not going to think dad's a serial killer. No, no. Jesperson still can't shut up. He talks to authors. He talks to pretty much everybody who will listen. You come to the point where killing something is nothing, Jesperson said to one reporter. It's the same feeling, he said, talking about killing animals and humans alike. You've already felt the pressure on the throat of them trying to grab air. You're actually squeezing the life out of these animals, and there isn't much difference. They're going to fight for their lives just as much as a human being will. Oh, God. I just loathe this man. Me too. Uh. I don't know, something about this guy, something about this one that stands out for me. Just, um... Well, I think, I think it was how much glee yeah. he took in everything that he did. Yeah, I, I don't buy for a second any of his claims of remorse or, or conscience I or think guilt. The, I think the conscience is a fear of getting caught. Absolutely. 100% with this guy. But then he wanted to get caught in the same vein... Because he wants, it, it's about that celebrity status for him in his mind. He's a big deal in the world now, is what he thinks. And there's attention to him, focus on him. It's all getting, it all gets him off. Like that's what he, 
thrives on. It's what he thrives on. And, uh, you know, I'm glad he's in jail, but I, I'm so sad that eight people had to be taken away. Yeah, and and obviously now his his family, his daughter, his daughter has done a, a few TV shows, lots mm. of interviews and those kind of things. And she's even done uh, the first episode in a documentary series, which she kind of hosts called uh, A Killer in the Family or, uh, yeah, mm. something like that. Mm. Oh, poor, the poor girl. Yeah, she went to speak to um, Tanya Bennett's family to apologize to them oh. on behalf of her family. I'm glad it sounds like she's a very... Yeah, she's good written, person. written a book as well. Yeah. So uh, if you want to look it up. Yeah, I would have put, yeah. I'll put it in the show notes. It, 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 it's it, it's sad how many victims come from shit like this. Like, Well, the, yeah, it's not victim... just, ju it, I shouldn't say just, but it's not the actual murder victim isn't the last victim. No, it's their family. Their moms, dads, brothers, sisters, kids. It's the killer's family. It's the first like, responders, these people who have oh, to find God, these yes. horrifically yeah. mutilated people who, uh, here in BC, they just recently enacted a, a new um, a new law where first responders are actually able to get money for counseling for post-traumatic stress. It doesn't, uh, it, that was an interesting uh, law passed too, because it wasn't just for first responders, it also uh, has to do with jurors. And which is, I'd never thought about it, but I, I read an article recently about how um, <clears throat> um, jurors of these heinous cases, um, they have to live with knowing all of these details, seeing crime scene photos. Yeah. Uh, like there's, uh, and there have been a fair amount of uh, of jurors who, can't really function afterwards and there has been never been anything in place to help support them you can't go on disability you know you can't uh, uh it, it's not covered in, under that and so this law also helps kind of change that as well so that hopefully uh you know jurors who are traumatized afterwards can um get support there you go yeah that's it for the happy face killer and i'm glad we're done with this tool bag yep yep so we had some interesting uh, things go on this week. We got some artwork, yeah. uh, some uh, custom dark poutine artwork. So dope. It is pretty dope. Yep. It's from Madison Paquin, and she's uh, a Toronto artist and fan of the show. And uh, uh, she posted something in the Umber Yard, and I said, hey, I would love to use that uh, for, for T-shirts and stickers and stuff. Yep. Yeah, it's really, I really love it. It was just one of those kind of uh, pleasant surprises that pops up in your feed. She sent me some files uh, of high resolution versions of this artwork. And Sweet. Yeah, so we'll get it done. If you want to follow her, uh, her website is Instagram.com slash Madison Paquin. And I'm not going to spell it out. I'll just put it in the show notes. Yeah. But it's Paquin like, uh, I guess, Anna Paquin. Oh, yeah, there we go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if she's related because Anna Paquin's Canadian. Hmm. She's if from only Lin there was some way to find out. We could ask her. No, I, no. I think we just did actually. Not so subtly. And I didn't know Anna Paquin was Canadian. She was born in Winnipeg. Hmm. Wow. So we have some new Patreon patrons. Uh, we're so happy to uh, say thank you to uh, Melissa Brunette. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
Thank you, Melissa. Yar. Uh, Lay Frazier or Lee Frazier. I'm not sure. Some people pronounce L-E-Y Lay and some pronounce it Lee. So Lee Frazier. I'm going to pronounce it as you're awesome. There you go. Uh, the Marble Garden podcast uh, oh. also pledged to us. Thank you very much. Sweet. Uh, Thank you, Marble Garden. Sawyer, uh, she is awesome. Uh, if you want to listen to that podcast, I really dig it. It's about uh, cemetery stuff funerary things oh neat yeah it is very very interesting oh that's very cool ohio valley true crime thank you very much yeah, thanks ohio valley Ilya wilmot oh yes okay very active on the Embryard. yard lover yes. love and we have another prime minister oh wow i think this makes four wow i don't think like as a you can't really like a country can't have four prime ministers no but a podcast can have multiple okay okay and this one's name is sarah Klassen. thank you so much sarah oh sarah you rock thank you yeah sarah is from bowser british columbia you know i've never even heard of that and so let's see we have so she's from Bowser, British Columbia, and so two of our prime ministers are from BC. Yeah. So Kyla, what, the Kyla Lenty Jones is from New West. Yep. Ashley Black is from Seattle, and our original, yeah, the OG, first, the OG, the OGPM, Kyla Ball is Ooh, from what? Toronto. Kyla. There you go. So thank you all to all our prime ministers, for sure. You guys are awesome possums. Totes awesome possums. Totes my goats. And uh, thank you to everybody who gave us some cashola. Yeah, thank you guys. Seriously. Much appreciated. And th thanks again to Madison for your artwork. I can't wait to uh, see what it looks like on a, on a shirt and some stickers. Totally. All right. If you want to donate to us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast gmail.com. Check out our website. That's darkpoutine.com for show notes and other stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine and tell your friends. Especially fun is our closed Facebook group, The Umber Yard. There are well over 300 listeners in there now. And growing every day. Growing every day, and we love you alls. Oh, totes. Our, our Yumber Yard is the funnest place. It I, is. It feels like a safe place, too, which I am very grateful that you, you people keep it a safe place. Yeah, it, it, which is amazing as, as we keep growing, that everybody's following uh, uh, that positive uh, direction with us, so. You can subscribe to us uh, at your favorite podcast directory like iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or at our host, Podbean. Podbean's our host for now. Woo woo. Woo woo. Um, we have a, a podcast promo this week, and it is from uh, All Crime, No Cattle. Hey, true crime fans i'm aaron and i'm shay we host all crime no cattle a conversational podcast which focuses on true crime stories from the lone star state we strive to bring you a balanced and well-researched story about texas cases big and small we do the research so you don't have to 
We also end every episode with a good news story, just to remind everyone that real life isn't quite as depressing as true crime can make it out to be. New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All crime, no cattle, because crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. I've had some interactions recently with Shay from All Crime No Cattle, and uh, he's he and I were talking about some of the podcast business stuff, and uh, I might have an announcement about some of the podcast business stuff here in a bit, but uh, we will we will see business business. So that's that. Uh, check out uh, All Crime No Cattle because they have a pretty fantastic Texas based uh, podcast. Uh, they are, are pretty cool. I apparently love there's, name. yeah, apparently there's quite a few podcasts in Texas and they even have like a little podcast get together. Oh, nice. They've invited us to come and said they would make us, uh, um, honorary Texans if we go. <laughs> I'd be totally down with that. And they would take us for barbecue. I would totally be down with that. Right? Right. So who knows? We, we might end up in Texas at some point. <laughs> That's right. I would, it would be a blast. I think it would. So don't forget to be good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.